The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. We dare on great warrant because you have told us to come and ask you for more. You have told us that you are honored and pleased to give us more, to give us, in fact, the kingdom with him. We ask you for that, and we ask you now for help along the way. As was prayed earlier, Lord, would you walk with us through life now? And in some particular ways, this morning I ask that you would open the eyes of us, your people, and cause us to see the glory of freedom in Christ. Certain aspects, I'm sure, will be brought up and emphasized and certain aspects missed and and overlooked and left for another day but this morning lord would you cause us to see some new piece of what it is to be set free in christ and to glory in it and say thank you to say thank you with our mouths and with our hearts but but to walk in thanksgiving lord that's what really what i mean would you cause us to be a people who are thankful people who are not forgetful and, and accidentally overlook and, and really presume upon and, and miss the wonder of freedom, but who understand it, who remember it and walk in it and enjoy it in thanksgiving and in rest. Do that kind of work in our midst here this morning, I pray, Lord, with this passage. Do you lift up Christ in front of our eyes and cause us to worship, cause him to be honored and cause us to be a people who, who understand and, to, and who experience the freedom that he has won for us. And Lord, I, I know there are some who, who are here and who will hear this and who will hear of this who don't know you. Would you awaken them to bondage and the hope of liberty? Make them aware. Open eyes and give sight heal blindness, heal oppression, and set free captives into the glory of Christ. Do that work this morning, I pray, Lord. To make your text clear, would you keep us from distraction? Do you keep us from, uh, from barriers that sin may create, that temperature and noise may create, Lord? Remove distraction. There are sins we need to deal with. Lord, call your people now to confess and walk away from sin and walk towards you. Just address the different barriers so that you would have your way in our heart. Speak, we pray. Awaken us and cause us to revel in what you have done for us, that Christ would be honored and that we would experience good from you through him. Bless your people, build your church, and honor the name of Christ, we pray. And it is in his great name that we ask this. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 4, where we see Jesus finally now beginning his personal ministry. Up to this point in Luke, we've seen a lot of preparation for this moment. Months, in fact, chapters of preparation. We've seen the births of John and Jesus announced and described. We've seen John's ministry described for us. And then recently, we've seen God's confirmation of Jesus as the true Son through whom he's going to build the new humanity. The sonship of Jesus... The fact that Jesus is the beloved Son of God, that sonship was declared at the baptism of Jesus, was noted in the lineage of Jesus, and then, as we saw recently, was proven in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Beginning of chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, led by the Spirit in the wilderness for this exactly 40-day period tempted all through that time, empowered by the Spirit, and then at the end of that 40-day period, when those days were complete, he faced these three, as we saw, these three paradigmatic temptations. 
Satan drew near and tempted him to turn away from God to feed his own appetite and to turn away from God and to establish a kingdom of personal glory and honor right now. To turn away from God and, and to coerce a sign of God's approval rather than trusting God. Those are the temptations. He faced them. We faced them. And full of the Holy Spirit, he remembered his father and remembered his father's fathering of him. His father's giving of grace, his, his father's promise, and remained faithful, and so Satan left him. And Jesus, now looking at verse 14, where we begin this morning, still in the power of the Spirit, this is how Jesus lives, in the power of the Spirit. Still in the power of the Spirit, returned from the south region to the north region, north, north part of Israel, the region of Galilee, returned to there, and began to travel around and preach in synagogues, one after another. He began to travel and preach, and everybody heard about him, heard about his teaching, and about, as we'll see, his miracles. Everybody praised him, marveled at him, and, and in a way really glorified him. This doesn't mean that they properly understood everything about him, but they did hold him in great esteem during this time. This is the introductory, this is kind of the beginning, a general summary of what happened after the temptations. Jesus immediately began to minister, to teach and preach and explain who he was and what he was about. He went around Sunday by Sunday, or Sabbath by Sabbath, I should say, Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday, and came one day to Nazareth, our focus for this morning. So I'm going to read verses 14 through 30 pass back through this passage to make sure that we understand a couple of the details and then draw out a, a couple of uh, main observations from this passage. So what we're getting is a picture, one slice of what he did week by week by week, seeing one take of it on the day that he came to his hometown, Nazareth. We draw out those two observations. What they're going to lay out for us is this following main point. Here's where I'm going this morning. Jesus was sent to proclaim God's jubilee. Jesus was sent to proclaim God's jubilee, so embrace him for freedom. Jubilee is tied to the idea of freedom. We'll talk about that. Jesus was sent to proclaim God's jubilee, so embrace him. For freedom, to experience freedom, liberty. So we're going this morning. Let me read Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, down through verse 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. We have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. 
But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Luke chapter 4. Nazareth, seen, is essentially his hometown, Jesus' hometown. And his traveling ministry, as we said, brought him throughout the whole region of Galilee. And finally, he comes to this place on the Sabbath. And as is usual for him, he goes to the synagogue to worship. And he's participating in the regular order of service in in a synagogue worship service. Stands to read. But the fact that he himself unrolls the scroll to find the passage shows that this isn't actually the passage that was picked for that day. Would have been open to that. It would have been handed to him. He's, He's searching. He finds a place which kind of heightens the tension. What place did he find? Waiting. They know who he is. They've heard what he's been doing and what he's been saying, so they expect him to teach, surely. But from where? For the moment, they don't know. What he's going to read and what he's going to say. And then he begins to read Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1, a well-known messianic passage about God's deliverance. Luke tells us what he read there in verses 18 and 19, a quotation that is mostly, most of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, but which seems to include a line from Isaiah chapter 58. It's not quite clear if Jesus said that line when he read the scriptures or if, because this is actually, it's Luke reporting it to us, perhaps Luke's reporting what Jesus included later in his sermon on the passage. It's a a verse from Isaiah 58, and as often allusions to Old Testament passages do, one line brings the whole context with it and combines it with and compares it to the context from Isaiah 61. Very similar wording. You can't even tell it doesn't belong in the context. But what Jesus is saying is that what Israel was supposed to do in Isaiah 58 I'm including that in what I, as Messiah, will do in Isaiah 61. It's combining these two passages. I will set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's the line from Isaiah 58. Fits right in with 61. Similar accomplishments, all coming from Messiah, as recorded in chapter 61. And then he sits down to teach, as was the custom. And everyone, eyes riveted on him, hears him say, that is now. That that you just heard read is fulfilled today. That's how he began the sermon. It says, those are the words that he began with. He had much more to say. He's got a whole sermon after that. But Luke doesn't tell us any of that because the focus is on the claim, that's me. I'm the one that's about. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one sent to do that. The focus is on the claim and then the response, the twofold response. As the people are listening to him talk, they have two divergent responses. First, they really like how he speaks. They marvel at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. It seems that they're having this reaction even while he is speaking because it's talking about the words that are coming out of his mouth He is a really good speaker. This is about oratory. To comment on oratory skill. This is the carpenter. And man, can he talk. Now, as to what he's saying, that's the other response. Not quite convinced of that. He's the Messiah of Isaiah 61? Really? Is not this Joseph's son? We used to change his diapers. 
so to speak. This, this is his hometown. They all know. You taught him math, for crying out loud. You're the one who taught him to recite the Hebrew. You're the one who taught him that the Hebrew Scriptures say, and now he says that he's the subject of the Hebrew Scriptures? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I'm going to need more than just an assertion to believe that. Do what you did in Capernaum. They've heard what he's been doing. He's been traveling around. I need to see something. Come on. Come on. Come on. No way. That's the second and dominant response. In verse 23, Jesus, seeing their body language and reading their minds, I know you're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. You say you're a doctor? Okay, prove it. Heal yourself. Show us what you're claiming. Prove you are who you say you are. The problem here, though, is that prophets are not evaluated on their message after they perform some miraculous sign. Many prophets never performed any miraculous signs at all. This is not actually honest inquisitiveness. It is doubt and unbelief. Jesus sees it for that. And says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. I am not being accepted here. That's what he's saying. And then he reminds them of two stories that expose this doubt and unbelief. And you've got to understand the stories here to understand the response. Why are they filled with wrath? What, what is it about this that, that turns them from doubt, from a no way to kill him? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a large change. What, what's in these stories? Well, these two stories, two prophets of Israel living in the land of Israel who don't minister to Israelites but are sent to Gentiles. And Jesus brings them both up. Two prophets rejected and sent to deliver Verse 27 says, sent to none of those in need in Israel. And verse 28, none of them in Israel were cleansed. Are you saying, that's what it's about, are you saying that if we reject you, God will move on past us to the Gentiles? How arrogant and how offensive. You're saying that God's dealing with us, his people, hinges on how we deal with you. If we make you the Messiah, we make you the Messiah. That's what hinges on whether God deals with us or whether he goes to Gentiles. You are crazy, arrogant, and tremendously offensive. Filled with wrath. Not, not just like this guy's loony, angry. And they move to kill him. They chase him out of town. They want to throw him off the cliff. It says that Jesus passing through their midst went away and ironically proves his point. You did reject me and I've left. It doesn't say how he miraculously moved through them or perhaps said something else that intimidated them. It doesn't say he just passed back through their midst and left. That's the text from which we're going to draw two observations. Here's the first one. Jesus is the promised one sent from God with power to proclaim freedom. Jesus is the promised one sent from God with power to proclaim freedom. Verse 14 reminds us once again that Jesus is in, dependent on the power of the Spirit. And verse 18 expresses it again as he quotes from Isaiah, reads from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Why is that? For, or because, the second line, he has anointed me, God the Father, God has selected Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor. 
God's plan is that Jesus would be the unique proclaimer. And we'll talk a little bit about what the proclaiming means. But he's selected Jesus to be the one and has then given Jesus the power of the Holy Spirit. Certainly as a, as a marker, as an identifier, this is the one. But as power to make something so. This good news that is for the poor. As we see what the good news is in the, in the following lines, we'll realize that he doesn't really have his eye on materially poor, those who don't have money or wealth. Could include that. Could, could include folks who are materially poor, and we should not forget that. We should keep that in mind, but it's not only or even primarily focused on material realities here. This line or the following lines that elaborate on what this good news is. There's good news from God sent to poor, those who are poor in spirit, needy, who have a need, who know it, who are aware of it. God is acting to meet it. Restating it, to say the same thing again differently, the following lines, he has sent me to proclaim, several phrases here, liberty to captives, Again, not a literal liberty to a literal captive. This is language that most appropriately fits the exiles captive in a foreign land, and they've already been returned. And he didn't actually set any captives free from any exile. Physical. Something spiritual in mind here. Some, some great spiritual reality. Recovery of sight for the blind. Now, Jesus did heal physically blind people, but not all blind people. Set at liberty those who are oppressed. He didn't address politics, political oppression. In fact, that's, we could say that that's what the people expected him to do, and the fact that he did not address political oppression became one of the great reasons he was set aside, discarded. He did not address the oppression of Rome. He doesn't have in view the liberty of political oppression, the, the, the ending of physical blindness, the returning of, of people from a foreign captivity. He's got something else in view, some other type of good news, a spiritual reality. That being said, though, these phrases, we, we can't just throw them away and say, well, they're just creative, colorful ways of describing this good news, of just saying it in a different way that's meaningless. There are particular reasons these phrases are used to reiterate good news. Jesus has power to meet the needs of the poor. So we're going to think about what are the reasons that these types of phrases are used to describe good news. Jesus has power to make poor people abundant. To make people wealthy. To make people full. To meet need. And I'm emphasizing to make. The word used here twice is to proclaim. And he is indeed speaking. He is indeed preaching. But this is not a, a proclaiming that is just the, the uttering of language. This is a proclaiming like the proclaiming of God in the very beginning when he spoke into existence everything that is. It's a proclaiming that creates a reality from nothing. He doesn't just announce liberty. He makes liberty be. He frees. So what we're talking about here, and what we will be talking about in the next couple of minutes here, is not, maybe there's a little change that happen in your mind, it is not of something that might be he is announcing a possibility like, like I would announce a possibility. Jesus actually makes that so for you. When he proclaims liberty to you, he frees you. 
All I, all I can do, if I proclaim liberty to you as a human being, I can just announce the possibility of freedom. He frees. You've got to think about this. Because there is wonder here. There is wonder here. Jesus is sent in the power of the Holy Spirit with God's very power to make a spiritual reality change, to bring life from death, to open blind eyes and give sight, to give liberty to captives, and you really were, maybe some of you still are, but all of us who are believers, you really were a captive. You, you, never, you never thought of yourself like that, and perhaps now it's hard to think back and see yourself like that. And as you walk and see people in, in the world all around you, in the mall, on the street, you don't look at them and think of them as that. But you really were a captive before Jesus, outside of him, before this good news. You were indeed an enslaved exile which is why he uses this language. You were in a far country away from him, locked up and unable to come. A captive. Taken by force to serve a cruel, hard master, trapped and powerless. And God in Christ freed you from and to. He freed you from. Think about this. If you, if you, and, and I, in no way am I chastising you, but I do think that in some ways we, we, we are way too familiar. It just runs off our minds. Think. Enslaved. What were you enslaved to? What were you bound to? You were bound in several ways. You were bound to, to a lifestyle and to a mindset and to an attitude, to behaviors, to a future, to, to a present reality, and to a future that included a great judgment. Bound all through it. Bound to a lifestyle that is all about up to you which when you think you've done well produces pride, and when you think you've done poorly produces fear and guilt and burden upon burden to do and do and do more. You, were about, you had no other way to live other than a life that was all for and about you, bound to it. And that produced a life that you could not get out of, a life that was utterly, finally, utterly futile. Because you don't have enough power to make your life and the world work. You are bound to a life of futility and a life of frustration. You may think you do well one day and then pride steps in and then you compare yourself to the next person you realize I'm not actually that good. A life that produces no fruit, no lasting impact, but produces just an endless mill that you run and run and run and run and run. All the while running towards a judgment that you know in the back of your mind you cannot get out from under and is real and is coming because the creation declares to you you're not God and the one who is is omnipotent and holy, holy, holy. And you are bound to do nothing other than run towards the cliff. It is a terrible bondage and you could not get away from it and nothing you could do could fix it. Nothing. You get up in the morning determined to be better and you go to sleep at night where you weren't. Terrible. And you know that at the end of it, over that stands a wicked enemy of your soul who will condemn you by pointing out to the holy God what you have done and who you were. And he, the judge, will destroy you. Bound to sin, bound to Satan, and bound over to a judgment. Awful bondage. 
to a life of futility that you could not get away from, to a mindset of burden. And God sent the Son to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set free the oppressed, to accomplish it, to open the eyes of the blind. You were bound to all this, and now I can talk about it to you and point you back at it, but in the moment you had no idea of it. Something felt wrong, something felt upsetting, something felt a little off, something felt like, like looming is a doom. I don't know what it is, I don't know who it is, I can't get away from it, I don't know what to do. There was a blindness over you, and God sent the Son to remove blindness and create sight, to shine light into darkness on those who sit oppressed. What kind of God is this? He's a God of glory and a God of grace and a God of mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy and after that, mercy. What a good God. That He stepped in to set captives like you free and to open eyes that are blind like yours. You know, there is such a thing as physical blindness and physical captivity and physical poverty and physical ailment. There are such things, and such things are allowed to exist so that we can get, think about this, so that we can get some little glimpse of the horror of poverty and blindness and oppression and imprisonment and can have some little taste of, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to see that relieved one day and can have some great elation and, and the feeling of some, some connection to the reality of when a captive is liberated. If you would ever see a blind man see, you would marvel at it. These physical realities and if you wonder where I'm coming up with this, you can think about John chapter 11 when Jesus talks about these things have happened. He's, he's just dealt with a blind man. He's going to deal with a dead man. These things happen so that the Son can be glorified. And end aside. These things are so that you can feel something of the wonder of this. You would marvel at a blind man who could see. You should marvel just that much that you have any idea what I'm talking about. Any idea. You would marvel if you were to see, you can read some of the Psalms and see how the people marveled when set free from Babylon, they were allowed to return with rejoicing and glee, exclaiming the blessedness of their release. That ain't the half of the story if you think about this kind of bondage and this kind of release and this kind of liberty. God uses these phrases to give us some idea in, in a material world, some idea of what He's done in Christ for you in the spiritual world. And He has actually done it in Christ. He has set you free. He set you free at the cross. He's removed off of you sin has made you new. We talked about this a few weeks back. The bondage that Satan has on us, the actual, the legal claim that he has on every person is this one's a sinner, you're a just judge, you have to condemn him. And God, the just judge, says you're right until Christ comes and atones. When that atonement is applied to you, you are freed because God the judge then says, no, you're wrong. You were right, he is a sinner, and you're right, I am a just judge, but you've missed the point that I have atoned for that sin at the cross. You have no claim. Case dismissed. He has set you free from that bondage, from that judgment. Done so at the cross brought you to life and made you a new creature with life and with sight. Glorious. Glorious. This is what Jesus is doing 
we get some idea of, the, of what that would be. If, just looking at the physical world, uh, seeing blindness and seeing sorrows and seeing captivities and, and seeing them relieved. Some idea of it in the physical world and some idea if you understand some of the spiritual words, some feeling of what it would be like to experience the day of the Lord's favor. Verse 19, he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, which is just the way of, in summary, restating what he was saying. He proclaims the year of the Lord's favor when all of this is done away with. Captivity and blindness and oppression. A sentence there, verse 19, that reminds us of an interesting Old Testament concept, commandment. You see it in the title, and perhaps some of us know what the title's about, and some maybe don't, but in a couple places, in Deuteronomy chapter 15 being one, the seventh year, so working through a seven-year cycle, so year number seven is called the Sabbath year, or the year of the Lord's release. And then in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 25 describes what happens when seven of those cycles happen, seven sevens, the 50th year would be called the year of Jubilee, the great release. And what God set up on those days, the year of his release, the year of Jubilee, was, and just think, if, if we're working backwards in the story, it's not hard to see the connections here. The cancellation of all debts, the freeing of all slaves, the returning of sold-off land to the ancestral owners. A fixing of what's gone wrong and a restoring of individual people and a restoring of society, kind of like hitting the reset. You know, when you played a video game and everything's lost, you hit reset and you start over again. I did it like a thousand times with a Defender when I was young. Just a little Atari lever. Hey, look, everything's right. We can start over again. Jubilee is the setting of everything right. Free. You were a sold slave, broke with your land, sold off because you had to get rid of it to pay your debts, and now, next day, you live at home again. And you have a chance to start over. He resets people and his people in the year of Jubilee. It's what God says he's accomplishing when he sends Jesus. And he even underlines that in a very dramatic fashion by what Jesus says and by what he does not say. Because if you knew this, if you had this verse memorized, or if you were following along in your own Bible, people didn't have their own Bibles, their own scrolls, but you'd realize Jesus reads along and he stops right in the middle of verse 2. Isaiah 61, verse 2. He stops right in the middle and says, this has been fulfilled. This, in other words, the, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he doesn't say, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God, which is the very next phrase. He stops, <clears throat> sits down and says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. The other's coming, but not yet. Today is jubilee. You can't miss that point. The day of vengeance of our God, it, it is indeed coming. It's the very next phrase. It's not, you didn't excise that from the Bible. It's there. It just isn't yet. Today, this, the day of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, is now in me, here. What do you do with that? That's the second point. Here's the second observation. 
having heard him declare that, we have to be careful with and beware of this alarming reality that we see in this passage. So here's the second point. Familiarity with Jesus may breed a sort of contempt that drives away both him and his jubilee. Familiarity with Jesus may breed a sort of contempt that drives away both him and his jubilee. They heard him say, the year of the Lord's favor is now. And they said, missed it? No way it's happening in you. Uh, never mind that I, what the year of the Lord's favor is and if I want that or if I need that or not, but not in you. Man, what a problem. What a bummer. Their remark is, is not this Joseph's son an objection? We already know Jesus, and we've known him for 30 years. We know who he is. We know what he's about. We know what he can do. He's a really nice guy. I mean, a really nice guy. He's the kind of guy you want as a friend. He's the kind of guy you want to do your carpentry work if you need to. But the Messiah? No. It's an objection, a contempt for him and his claims born from familiarity. And how Jesus puts this, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, is a little bit of a warning to us because he's telling us something about human nature, not just about them there, saying in general, familiarity breeds contempt, we would say. Which has disastrous implications in all kinds of things in life. It obviously is the root of many marital problems. We become familiar with each other and we stop paying attention, stop being careful, stop being gracious with one another. Familiarity breeds contempt. Sometimes an open-handed, high-handed, offensive contempt, and sometimes just a disregarding and an overlooking and a forgetting about. That's what we mean by the phrase. That's what Jesus is getting at. And that's a tremendous problem in the spiritual realm. Jesus then moves the next two sentences, next two verses, to talk about Elijah and Elisha and shows here are two prophets of Israel, sent to Israel, speaking about the God of Israel, speaking in the language of Israel to the people of Israel. And they say, in that day, we want nothing to do with you and your God and your Bible and your word and your prophecies from Moses. And, and, and so God said, okay, goodbye and left. The familiarity that drove away God and his blessing. Jesus calls it there in Nazareth, and his point is that it can happen, not just there, but it can happen as he speaks today. All of us here in, in, in the room and probably everybody you, you know, we've all heard about Jesus and know a lot about him, and many of us, I'm sure the majority of us here, would, would profess to have faith in him. I'm sure that would be the case. And there's a pitfall that lies in front of all of us. This, this danger, we need to be aware of it and alert to it. Both us, those of us who are in the church and those who are outside of the church in the world the world out there encounters its needs, some of which are great and evil and tragic, and some of which are just bothersome, everything in between. It encounters its needs and seeks to solutions to those needs, and Jesus, his person, his work, his words, is not considered. He's not even on the table as a viable possibility. Now, of course, some of that's because of prejudice and bias against Jesus and the Bible and Christianity that's due to a sinful hardness of heart. 
But there is also a contempt there. We should think about this when we're, we're interacting with a non-Christian friend or coworker or family member, or if, in fact, you yourself are not a Christian, you should think about this. There is also, indeed, a hardness of heart that is a spiritual blindness, but there is also a contempt of sorts born of familiarity, which is actually unfamiliarity. The folks in Nazareth said, we know who this is. But they didn't. And folks, the world over in our houses, in our neighborhoods, in the world, all around us say, we know who that is, and they don't. How many times do you hear a, a person, a friend, a coworker, some non-Christian person around you reflect or in conversation actually assert some understanding about the rules and requirements of Christianity, or perhaps on some, uh, some understanding of a universal, all-encompassing love of Jesus. So on the one hand, the, the idea is out there that for Jesus to accept me, I've got to follow a whole bunch of rules and do a whole bunch of things and behave in a certain loathsome and unattractive way, and then he'll accept me. Or, on the other hand, he accepts everybody, regardless. How many times do you hear either of those two positions? I would say, all the time. Always. And of course, we know neither one of them are true. But thinking that, that either or, one of the other of these situations is the way it is, is what the Scriptures teach, is who this Jesus that you're talking about is, thinking that's the case, he has nothing to do with the real issues of the world that I'm, about, that I'm looking at, like things like racism or injustice or pleasure or relationships or peace or hope. If we're talking about religious things, I suppose it's one of those, I don't, those are both unattractive to me, and he doesn't have anything to say about the real stuff. And so, from this kind of familiarity, he set aside and moved on past to look for some other solution somewhere else. And it is all tragically wrong. So, I mean to say two things here. One, if if you are not a Christian at the moment here, I want to appeal to you and say it is entirely possible that you misunderstand the whole message. Now, there's a second step. Do you believe the message? That, that's an important question. But the first step is, do you know the message? Almost everybody that I talk to does not. Almost everybody that I talk to. What's Christianity teach? that you got to do a whole bunch of things and then God accepts you, or you don't have to do anything and he accepts you regardless. Neither one of those is true. If that's what you've thought, perhaps you misunderstand. But I also want to say to those of us who are Christians, this is part of, I'll say, the burden, the responsibility, the calling of us as we interact with non-believers around us there is a God who has acted to bring a great and glorious jubilee, to bring freedom to people. And part of our job as we interact with people, as his spokesmen, as his spokeswomen, as his hands and his feet, part of our jobs is to explain and to clarify and to make clear what that jubilee is, actually, how it impacts everything in life, how it touches on racism and injustice and pleasure and relationships and marriage, etc., 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 how all of those are, in fact, every single one of them spiritual questions, to explain that and then to clarify who Jesus actually is so that they then become familiar with him and don't reject him out of misunderstanding. This is a complicated conversation. But it's part of, it's, it's right at the core of what real Christian witness is to people. You don't just shout at them from the distance. Worse, condemn them from a distance. We have to draw up near and explain this issue that you are focused on is an issue about Jesus. And he is the answer. His jubilee applies to that. 
And here's how you experience it, not how you've thought. That is a hard conversation to have. It is a complicated conversation to have. Thank God that he has power to open the eyes of the blind who don't see it. That being said, the passage is probably more directly speaking to us who are insiders. Because everybody here in the synagogue at Nazareth and everybody back in Israel the days of Elijah and Elisha would have thought themselves insiders. Certainly familiar with what's being talked about. Certainly not like the outsiders, I'm, I'm on the inside. And their familiarity, supposed familiarity, bred a contempt. We have to be careful of that. I think I might put it, try to draw together some things and say it like this. If you ask Christians, who is Jesus? What is he about? What does he do? What does he provide? What does he offer? In some way or another, you probably would say, write down, perhaps with some prodding, list out everything that I said in the first point. Probably. I mean, there wasn't anything like remarkably new there, right? You probably come up with that with a list of things like that. And the problem is or I think the problem is that's existing in us at the level of our language and the level of our belief. But I wonder if our actions say something else that we rarely think about any of that. Ask if this is true of you. I think it's true of many of us, unfortunately, that we, we get up and we walk through our days giving very little thought to Jesus. At points, yeah. But often... Not, not every person, not every day, by no, means am I, by no means am I trying to condemn you with this. I'm trying to, I hope, bring something to light that would be liberating even. But often we walk through the day and we, we get up and he's not the first thing we turn our minds to. We encounter this good thing or this bad thing and he's not the one that we give thanks to in all circumstances. We encounter this question or this struggle and he's not the one that we pray to without ceasing. When a catastrophe, something really bad happens, somebody gets hit by a car or you find out that you just lost your job, something, boom, blows up in the day, then we pray and then we, we text friends and ask them to pray and we call people and say, will you pray for me? But that, I think, sometimes reveals I wasn't actually living in that realm the hours before. I'm visiting Jesus, not walking with him. I know everything, and I, and I know all about him, but practically speaking, at least this is true of me, I can go through periods of the day, long periods of the day sometimes, mindless towards him. Now, I have an advantage over you. I have a lot of hours in my day given to a job that keeps me kind of on task. Your, your jobs, most of your jobs don't. So there's, there's a, I have an advantage there. I, I, I'm brought back to think about Jesus by some structure around me. And I am not advocating that while you're thinking really hard about computer programming, you should be thinking equally hard about Jesus. I don't, that would be, I don't think, possible. But what I'm saying is that there, there is a way we, we can walk through life mindful of him. I get to Jubilee in a second. And I don't think that we do often. Not an open-handed, high-handed contempt, but a, an oversight, a forgetfulness, a presumption upon. 
Kind of like how we can come to presume upon marriage. 20 years later, you realize it's stale. If we would walk with Jesus through the day, mindful to to be turning our hearts towards Him, thankful to Him in all circumstances, praying to Him without ceasing, what we would find there is that's a walk in liberty. That's a walk that is constantly aware. I am not living in a world that is up to me, that is dependent on me, from which if I succeed, I boast, and if I fail, I worry and try harder. But I'm living, as I'm mindful throughout the day, I'm living in a world that is ordered by my Father in heaven who sovereignly reigns over all of this and every single thing, the good and what I regard as the bad, the the pleasant and the painful, he's reigning over all of this to do good to me, to set me free, to open my eyes to see the depth of spiritual realities and to enjoy his good, sustaining grace. He is at work in all of this, mindful of him in the day, throughout the day, not only in the morning at the quiet time, but all day long. It would be a walk in liberty a walk of jubilation. It's how you rejoice in all things. And again, I say rejoice. That's stupid talk. Unless you're actually walking with Jesus and aware, like I was just saying, that all of this is ordered by him to do good to me. Then it's obvious. To rejoice in all things. To rejoice and again to rejoice. Yes. Because all of this is a life given to me by a God of grace. All of this is ruled over by my Father who does me good. In all of this, I am a captive no longer but set free to live with and to enjoy Him to prosper under His hand. Need to be done. So I'll, I'll, I'll conclude with just a, a plea. Would you please, would you please consider for your own good, for your own good, do you throughout the day Walk conscious of liberty and fatherhood. Let me just put it just like that. Do you walk conscious throughout the day, if you're a Christian, of liberty and fatherhood? You have been set free to a father who has you. Walk with Him and rejoice with Him. The great privilege won by you in Christ is liberty to a Father. Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would in, in some way take the, the crash landing of the end of that sermon and make sense of it for people. Make sense of it for me. And that you would help us to experience daily, moment by moment, walking with you and the great liberation that you have won for us. Help us to experience that and to think about it and to not keep our our beliefs on the shelf and walk as the world does. Familiar with the right answers, but not actually living in them and experiencing them. Help your people here to embrace you so as to know and experience freedom. Lord, press that into us even a little bit now as we we take in our hands this, this 
these two elements of communion. Impress upon us your care for us, your, your, your power that sets us free. And help us to experience enjoy. Help us to enjoy that work you have done for us that is meant to be experienced all day, every day. Give us grace, we pray, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.